to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. To find out about David's talks, books, and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So, I'm going to do tonight 1200 to 1250, and any historian of that period will tell you that it's extremely complex. Every time I talk history, and those of you who've heard me talk about history before, sorry, will know that I always say we are hov- Oh, oh. I was going to say you're worried about you. That we are only ever hovercrafting over it and at any moment we could fall into the abyss of detail. It is a very, very complex period of history generally. We're going to make sense of it because that's what I do. I extract what I think we need to understand as a basic framework and then we can understand how Jewish history is reacting and embedded in that history. But just generally, I need to be, I'm giving this warning every time, but tonight specifically, don't think that the, what we're going to talk about tonight is all there is to talk about in the years 1200 to 1250. Imagine if you had to stand up and give a talk for an hour or so on Jewish history from 1967, from the Six Day War until today. Yeah? How do you extract its basic themes? How do you set it against world history? And most importantly, how do you make it interesting? Now, I don't need to make it interesting. It is interesting. 1250, 1200 to 1250. I'm going to remind us of this world. I'm talking slowly, obviously, because I can hear people coming up the stairs. People who know that I started at 8 o'clock. Now. <laughs> All right. I want to I w- I outline, before we launch into any of the kind of things we're going to talk about tonight, we are going to talk about quite a few things, a lot of things, even when we try and hovercraft it. I want to talk about some of the background historical issues that are going on throughout this whole 50-year period. So this is not happening just at one location when we enter in 1200. It's in the background to everything I'm going to be talking about. Okay. Now the first thing we need to realize is that over the course of the 50, the half a century we're dealing with tonight, one of the things that's going on is what we now call, they may have even called it, the second reconquista of Spain. When we were sitting here last week, we talked about a Spain in the second half of the 12th century that was more or less north-south divided between Islam and Christianity. Yeah? Yeah. Well, this is the half century, 1200 to 1250, where that changes. By the end of this period, Spain, the whole of Spain, the the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, the whole thing is Christian. And the Christian kings that have conquered Islamic Spain are very interesting kings. We're going to talk about at least one of them in some detail. But that's going on in the background. 
And those kings, those kings weren't so bad as Christian kings to Jews. They were certainly an improvement on the Almohads who had taken over Spain in the middle of the 12th century. They were better than the Almohads and they were probably, as a whole, better than the kings of Western and Central Europe in relation to Jews. So that's one thing that's going on in the background. In corollary with that, remember it's all happening at the same time. In corollary with that, on the other side of the Mediterranean, the Crusades are still going. This is a period that covers the 4th, the 5th and the 6th Crusades. Each of those is a movement, a wave, a historical entity. And they all had one objective. Jerusalem. Now, the 4th Crusade, as I'm sure you know, was a total balagam and a disaster, and a massive, massive war crime. The Crusaders didn't even make it to the Holy Land. They ended up sacking and burning Constantinople, a Christian city. The Fifth Crusade was also a bit of a nochschlep. Didn't really get anywhere. It was more or less a failure. They were fighting the Abuyid dynasty. Remember that the Fatimids had been controlled of Egypt. Remember we looked last week and the Rambam and so on. Well, Salah din when he took over, he began his own dynasty called the Abuyids. So the Abuyids were taking the brunt of these forces, but they were kind of a bit chilled about it. So the Sixth Crusade was actually kind of successful because they ended up getting Jerusalem. For the most part, the Crusaders, the Crusades were a failure, except for a little period uh, during the uh, 1230s, where there was once again a Latin Christian kingdom in Jerusalem. But for the most part, it all ends up in Islamic hands. So by the time we're going to reach the end of this talk, this is all background, that's why I'm saying it now, Spain becomes Christian, and with the rise of the Mamluks and so on, the Holy Land is Muslim. Everybody follow? That's one thing that's going that, that, So that's going on. They're both corollaries. Another very important thing to understand about what's going on, and this is going to sound obscure to many of you, and it is a bit, but it's super important, and it's going on in the background. And that is the fact that Christian Europe is now entering a period that we know of, we call it, historians now call it, the period of high scholasticism. What that means, effectively, when you strip away all the fancy terms, is this. <laughs> they discovered Aristotle. <laughs> and basically, went nuts on it. As you do. It's like a drug. You eat a bit, you need some more. Now, Islam and Judaism have already had their adventure with Aristotle, but Aristotle now is not Aristotle what he, that he was for Sa'ad Jigaon 300 years before. That was all mixed up with Plato and a bunch of Ugabuga. Now we are separating out the real Aristotle and Aristotle is now science. This is the Aristotle 
that the Rambam would have known, but even beyond that. Texts are coming to light. People are doing a lot of editing work, a lot of copying. Monks are pouring over these texts. And we're not yet at Aquinas. That's why Aquinas, who's basically, basically, and don't repeat this outside this room, who's basically the Christian Rambam, and he takes Aristotelian thought and wields it with Christianity, and eventually that becomes acceptable. But before he comes along, everybody's reading Aristotle and going, Wow! This is amazing. And once again, I've got science, I've got religion. Religion I have to believe, but science I can know. That then leads to a whole new genre of heresies within the Christian world. As it would. That's going on in the background. And we're going to come back to it. It's important to understand. And then the last thing I want to say about that's going on in the background throughout this period of 1200 to 1250, and you all know what it was, because <coughs> with everything, and I, we do not have time for me to go into this in detail. This is such a big subject that I'm only mentioning it at the beginning because it's in the background, but we, don't have, we, don't, we can't go into the detail of it, but you need to be aware of it. And that is because they were certainly aware of it. Because throughout this entire period, in the background, Europe was faced with a very existential threat of total annihilation. Pretty much like those of us who grew up in the Cold War, the Cold War didn't necessarily affect us in Australia or places like this on a day-to-day -day basis, but you knew that any moment Russia and America could go to war and nuke the planet. That's what it was like. And what was the threat of annihilation? The Mongols. One word, Genghis Khan. And his sons, who throughout this entire period are sweeping, <coughs> not only towards Europe, but towards the Islamic world as well. They don't care. They're coming from a different planet. And they are not nice. They do not conquer kill a few governors and go, okay, now you can be part of our, an autonomous part of our empire. They're not Cyrus. They kill. They wipe out, you know, I mean, that's just to give you, I mean, anyone studied the history of Genghis Khan? It was amazing. I mean, amazing, amazing army and an amazing, amazing warrior. But you can imagine the stories that were reaching Europe about what was happening here. And they were unstoppable. And as you know, those of you who've studied the Mongol invasions, which we do not have time to go into now, first of all, those who think that they were just running around on some horses out here should realize that in 1238 they captured Moscow, after which they got as far as the Danube and were threatening Vienna. This was, this was not a thing, and, and everybody knew about this, and everybody was concerned about this. And there were Jews that fought for the Mongols, and there were Jewish communities that helped shore up defences for European communities. Jews were not really agendered with the Mongols in any specific way. It was all local. But that was an existential threat that's happening throughout this entire period. All right? Um, do you watch Game of Thrones? Do you ever watch Game of Thrones? Yeah, I understand what you said. Do you know the, do the Dothraki? 
Yeah? What religion were the Dothraki? Right? Something like that. They tended to adopt syncretically some of the ideas, but it's a very, very complex topic. Yeah? That's a very complex topic. And it's a good question. It's a good question. I'd have to, I'd have to come back to you on that. But I want to go back to where we left off last week. We talked about uh, a very, very important community in Germany that was having a tremendous influence around the place, and that, of course, was Regensburg. Yeah? Remember we spoke about Regensburg? And we spoke about the Hasidei Ashkenaz. Regensburg saw itself, and once again, as I remind us, it was called the Jewish Athens. Regensburg saw itself as this intellectual center of the movement that had been basically led by the descendants of Rashi, that had become known as the Baalei Tosafot. <coughs> They were sitting there, they were writing all sorts of glosses on Talmudic passages. They were diving into the meanings of passages, the meanings of words. They were heavily into commentary. <coughs> Halachic outcomes, not so much their priority. That was a Sephardish shtick. But <laughs> they were very, very into In other words, they are kind of reflecting the trend in Europe towards high scholasticism. And we can, in fact, see some cross-fertilizations of elements of didactic logic between Christian scholasticism and all those monks thinking and writing books and so on and all of that industry and the projects of the Baalei Tosafot on the Talmud. And it also is the place which began that movement called Yehudei Ashkenaz, uh, Hasidei Ashkenaz, the pious of Ashkenaz. Remember we, spo we spoke about that? It is a mystical, pietistic movement that had tremendous influence on the character of Ashkenazic Jewry. This is the period in time, ladies and gentlemen, that is responsible for you not eating rice on Pesach. That is this period. They decided. Rice? Never seen it, but it sounds like a legume. Now. <laughs> I kid you not. I kid me not. <laughs> now. Ba-boom. Um, so, one of the big students of uh, Yehuda Hasid, probably the most famous student of Yehuda Hasid, who deeply explored the mystical aspect of the Hasid Ashkenaz. I spoke very briefly last week about their theology. Their theology involves a concept of the kavod, the splendor of God, through which imagistic motifs allow us to have an apprehension of the divine. And a, and a, and a, and a hymn like Anim Zemirot, if you look at the translation, it's a very great reflection of that. And Yehuda Hasid is very much moving in that direction, but his student, Eliezer of Worms, takes that even further and begins to develop a very unique Ashkenazic flavor of mysticism that involves contemplation of names, bit of magic, uh, some folk aspects, but very, very contemplative and above all striving for a type of removed uh, holiness, but with a great emphasis on the fact that mystical states are achievable through intellectual introspection. 
Now, why I mention El Azar of Worms, and he's very important, if, <laughs> but I also mention him because uh, it's a very interesting historical aspect to do with his wife. And I actually spoke about his wife in the series that I gave, I think, last year, the big seven part at the museum on women in Jewish history. And we spoke about Dolce of Worms. Dolce of Worms, I mean, we'd probably call her Dulce today, but, you know, Dolce. She was a great-granddaughter of Rashi. So already we're deep within that tradition of the Tosafot, of Rashi's family, of the Hasidah Ashkenaz. But what's remarkable about her, I mean, you know, everybody has a wife, but, or every man does, but what's fascinating about her is that we have some considerable historical insight into her life because she was well known as, not just as the wife, you know, of Eliezer of Worms, but she was a businesswoman in her own right. She was a business person in her own right. She ran a business that effectively sold and processed parchments. She was therefore able, through that business, and her parchments were known right throughout Europe as high-quality parchments, she was able to effectively fund a full-time yeshiva that her husband ran. What that also gives us an insight to, really, when we sometimes think of these periods and we think of at all stages in the medieval world, women are oppressed and so on. But even in the Christian world at this time, there is a rise somewhat of the status of women. Uh, but in Jewish life, it was a given. These are people that are not eating rice on Pesach, so they're very from. But they don't have a problem with women conducting business and being responsible for domestic and commercial affairs of the whole family. Yeah, it's a very important insight as well as the fact that it goes without saying that Dolce of Worms was herself a very learned woman. You don't become, you're not the great granddaughter of Rashi and married to one of the greatest rabbis in Europe if you're not quite learned yourself. And the third reason why we might mention it is just to remind us, we're going to talk about some very impressive people. and We're going to talk about, I mean, you have to understand, people give entire lectures on Elazar of Worms and they're not even mentioning uh, the wife, but one of the reasons why we want to look at this holistically is we also want to realize what a dangerous time this was to be Jewish in Christian Europe. Because Dolce and her two daughters were murdered in front of their husband's eyes in a horrendous attack by the local Yobos who just decided one night that they were going to go and kill some Jews. And this happened all the time in the Middle Ages. Now, if we are talking about the Ba'alei Tosafot, there is a very, very interesting account of the fact that in around about 1210, early in the 13th century, 300 rabbis of that Western Central European, more Western, school of the Tosafot, in around about 1210, decided to make Aliyah. It won't surprise you to know that there's some people who are living in Europe who are going, I don't need this. Why do I need this? Not only that, guess what we've heard? We've heard that Saladin now controls 
the land of Israel and that he doesn't have a problem with Jews. So if life's so crap here, maybe we go there. And there is another impetus, although I, just for those who are following this carefully, there does seem to be there do seem to be two stories of the Aliyah of several hundred Baalei Tosafot and they do possibly, they possibly are conflated because we have a similar account of it happening much earlier in 1145 as part of the Second Crusade and now we've got another one here in uh, 1210. They may be different. Bottom line is that after they went, we have no record of that community. We don't know what happened to them. Some historians surmise that they didn't last very long. They got caught up in all the crusader mess that was happening. They never managed to establish an enduring yeshuv that we know of. But why is it, do you think, that during the period we are talking about, that people would be wanting to make aliyah for ideological reasons, not just for practical reasons, Yes, it's true. The land of Israel is important. It's always been a longing. It's always a spiritual home. But why in this period did it suddenly become an impetus, an ideological impetus to go to live in the land of Israel? Well, obviously messianic. Why is messianic appearing now? Well, killings don't hurt messianic movements, apparently. But, but what we... What, what, the thing I'm pointing towards here, and I want us to understand, is the fact that this messianic movements tend to intensify in this period as we move towards the year 1240. Now, some of you are sitting going, okay, what's special about the year 12? What is special about the year 1240? What's the Hebrew year? 5,000. And already an idea is emerging in the mystical enclaves of Europe, and we see this because the next generation that we're going to talk about next week, the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes about this explicitly in his commentary on Genesis, that every day of creation equals a millennium of our history. So we are now moving into Friday. We are now moving into Erev Shabbat. And also, Kabbalistically, we are moving into a uh, millennium whose, and what, I mean, what was created on the sixth day? Human beings. And that's why this is the millennium, which will be the millennium of the human. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. But they said, well, you know, that's a good time to go to live in the land of Israel. Anything could happen. So we see that there. Now, I need to pick up on something else that's going on that I mentioned last week that I left off. Basically, we got up to the end of the life of the Rumbum. The Rumbum died, this towering figure, Maimonides, who we spoke about uh, last week. He, he passes away in 1204 yeah, of exhaustion basically and where is he buried? Tiberius, of course. Um, he died in Egypt. There is of course the famous legend that you know the uh, 
they, they, were, they, they wanted to bury uh, Maimonides, the Rambam, in the land of Israel, and they had a great big caravan with camels and all sorts of things, but they weren't sure where in Israel they should bury him, and the camel carrying the coffin of the Rambam ran off. <laughs> and they found it three days later, sitting in, on a plot of land in Tiberias. And that is where the Rambam is buried. Oh, it's a legend, but it's a legend that kind of has a ring of truth to it, the sort of thing that a camel would run off and you couldn't find it, and then, oh, there it is. Now, as I alluded to, I didn't allude, I said last week, the Rambam was very, very controversial. Very controversial. Today, to quote the Rambam, sounds very from. Very normative today. Can walk into any Chabad house and say the Rambam, and people go, yes. But in the 20 to 30 years after the Rambam, it was not like that at all. And his books were getting condemned for two reasons. We have two different attacks on the Rambam from different parts of the Jewish world. One of the attacks we discussed last week is on the Mishnah Torah. The Rambam wanted to rewrite Halakha, he wanted to rewrite the Torah without any sources. He just wanted to give you the end product and not tell you how he got there. And you can't do that, according to them. Now we know that the Rambam said, well, no one's like me, and they don't have time to sit down and do all that, and people need to know what the halakha is, so I've given it to them. What's your problem? They go, well, the problem is, Rambam, you have not given us any sources so that we can work out how you work this out and that we can engage with the fundamental principles so that we can work out, in other words, this, yes, you've produced a very impressive document for our time, but how do we go forward from here? That's one problem, big problem with the Rambam. The second big attack on the Rambam is what? Philosophy. Philosophy. People were reading Moren Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed, which was supposed to shore up people's intellectual faith, having read Aristotle. They're reading it, and they're leaving religion. And they're getting mixed up in philosophy, they're getting mixed up in Aristotle. And some rabbis in Europe are waking up, and some communities are waking up, and going, we don't want this. First of all, we don't understand Aristotle. Second of all, we're given the Torah, and we're not going to use some Greek dude running around in 4th century Athens with a foreskin telling us what is truth. Like, really? And streams of people are leaving Judaism and it's causing great commotion in communities. And other things that the Rambam said in the Moren of Uchim that could be interpreted in certain ways, such as when the Rambam implies that really the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah, are really just pathways to philosophical enlightenment. Oh, really? Oh, well, I'm already enlightened. So, you know, do I need mitzvot? That's the problem of the, of the outcome of the rationalist discussion that the Rambam had. Just remember, this is a footnote, just remember, when you study Jewish history, you're always going to get into trouble 
if you start explaining to people why they do what they do. Yeah? Now, one of the great defenders of the Rambam amongst the great scholars of Europe, defenders of the Rambam, is an interesting person in his own right. And that is Rabbi... And remember, in this amount of time, I've only got time to write those really important people that we need to know about. Yep. So if I mention them, let alone write them in the board, that shows you how important they are for us to understand who they are. Rabbi David Kimchi, otherwise known as the Radak. Put your hand up if you know who I'm talking about or at least have heard of the concept of the Radak. Those who go to Shiurim on Tanakh or on Parsha will occasionally hear someone say, oh, and the Radak says. Now, Rav David Kimchi was a ginormous linguist and grammarian. And he wrote a commentary on the Torah that began from a new starting point. Didn't use Midrash like Rashi was doing. It was closer to what Eben Ezra had been doing that I spoke about in the first talk. But he took it to a completely new level because for him, grammar and language were a science. They weren't just a tradition or something you could sit down on a Sunday afternoon and work out like your crossword. They were a science. His commentary is remarkable, not only because it's incredibly insightful in its own right, it gives us a picture on the understanding of Hebrew. Who studied Hebrew at school or university or anywhere, right? Studied Hebrew. And all of this business that we learn about Shoresh and Binyan and all of those things, that's still kind of slightly being worked out. The foundations of it were worked out in the late Gaonic period, but we're now entering a period where it's becoming solidified. So David Kimchi is one of the great uh, progenitors of what we now understand to be uh, the science of the Hebrew language. But what's even more interesting about Kimchi, sorry? A He's a redactor. <laughs> Hilarious. Very good. Very good. But not quite. He's not a redactor. He's a commentator. That's the thing. Uh, I mean, his texts are much longer than the texts he's commenting on. Um, and what's really interesting about him is that, and we don't even realize how influential he is sometimes, because he was the most influential Hebrew medieval commentator for later translators into European languages, particularly the King James Bible. When they sat down and they go, what does this verse mean? They didn't go to Rashi, like we would. What does it mean? Look at the Rashi. They didn't, they went to everyone, but the one they really, really stuck to was David Kimchi. And therefore you can see Kimchi's interpretation page after page inside the King James Bible. It's fascinating for those of you who want to go into that particular picture. So Kimchi is important. And therefore, when Kimchi stood up and said, I think the Rambam's okay, I don't think we should condemn, they were pointing to put a ban. They did put bans on the Rambam's books. You weren't allowed to read it. And Kimchi was one of those who came out and said, I think that we need to realize who the Rambam was. He was a giant and 
his works are going to be highly enduring, it would be a mistake for us to ban those books. All right. Now, I'm going to now launch on a particular part of this talk that is kind of super connected. And I want people to follow, not get confused. But everything I'm going to talk about now, in the next three or four short topics, are all connected. It's one long, sorry story about this period, but it is really the story. And it brings in from another, a few other different parts of Jewish history as well from this period. Is everyone right? There's some sort of, um, is everyone okay? Yeah, good. There were, you know how, you know how Christian Europe worked, right? So, there was a, um, there were two basic centers of power. One was Rome, where the Pope sat. And the Pope had total theological power. Total theological power. He could excommunicate you from heaven at will. He could save you from hell at will. The whole doctrine of infallibility is really emerging at this time. What the Pope says is the word of God, effectively. That's the church. That's the truth. Total power. The other center of power, but, 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 very little political power. Out, outside the political power that could be wielded by someone who had total power in religion. The other centre of power were the kings of Europe and most predominantly in their particular master who was of course whichever king found himself as the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy, obviously we're way beyond the Roman Emperor but the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, <laughs> the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor had total political power but was at the mercy of the Pope saying that he was a good Christian. Because if he loses uh, his good reputation, if, if he loses his credibility with the church, then he's no longer a Christian king and he forfeits everything. But the king, the emperor, has something that the Pope doesn't have. He has armies. And armies can conquer, and they can even conquer popes. So this period, one of the reasons this period is so complex is because of the interrelationship between these dynamics. And the Jews, of course, are right in the middle of this. Now, at the end of the 12th century, the end of the 1100s, a pope pops up. <laughs> pops up, I couldn't think of any other word. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, not, it's not just a Pope. He's a big Pope. He's, those of you who are into the history of Popes, and I can look around the room, and I know that some of you are, will know that this is a big Pope. And that, of course, is Innocent III. Not so innocent, but Innocent III. And Innocent III, the first thing we need to realize in his relationship with Jewish history is that in 1199, just as we are opening this store, this unfolding, I'm going to tell you, in 1199, he issues a decree on the Jews. 
And this is quite a remarkable document from a medieval pope. It assumes all of the attitudes towards Jews that are part of Christian theology at this point. However, it says, we sh people must not harass Jews. They must not randomly perpetrate violence against them. They must not desecrate their cemeteries. It was actually an edict of toleration. Obviously, obviously, it was absorbing all of the things from the Third Lateran Council I spoke about last week, about the fact that Jews can't have Christian servants and all the rest of it, but it was an edict. And particularly important, and remember this, particularly important is the realization, or is the decree, that the Jews are allowed to maintain the traditions that they have always had. So long as they're not blaspheming Christ, they are allowed to maintain the traditions they have always had. Now in 11, in 1215, Nicholas, not Nicholas, Innocent, Innocent III, the same Pope, sets up what became the Fourth Lateran Council. And this was probably the biggest Lateran Council, the most influential of the Middle Ages. It had a range of different concerns. And of course, as with all these things, they've got nothing better to do. You know, it's like a big limud, these councils, right? So you've got different sessions on different things. So, you know, Tuesday afternoon, we're going to do the Jews, right? So they all would have gone. There would have been a number of different sessions to go to, followed by some refreshment, and they would have talked about the Jews and then issued a statement. <coughs> the Fourth Lateran Council is the council that instituted the law that Jews uh, should wear badges signifying who they are. Now, the whole yellow star thing is a bit later, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an outcome of that. The idea that Jews need to wear an identifying badge. Now, that badge was sometimes enforced, sometimes not enforced in different places. One place where it was enforced, and we know, was England. And what was the badge? Anyone know? It was the Ten Commandments. They, have to have, they had to have a little Ten Commandments sewn into their garments to show that they were Jews. That's quite ironic. It's almost like saying, you Jews keep the Ten Commandments. We don't, but you do. It's very weird. Don't forget also there is a strong perception at this time generally in the Christian world that Jews, the Jewish religion, that Judaism is about keeping the commandments of the Old Testament. Which it is, but they don't really know much about the Talmud. They don't know much about the Oral Torah. Their perception of Jews is that we keep it as it's written in the Bible. And that's our problem, because we can't see that, obviously, huh? Look at that. Why would you not want Jesus when you got that? They have no concept of the Oral Torah. So they perceive us as literalists, and we're wearing these Ten Commandment badges in England. And now come with the Fourth Lateran uh, Council. The other thing that it... Go on. What was the impetus to want to make 
Good question. So, um, to identify them uh, when they were doing business and when they were travelling and so on, because Jews existed in a special category, uh, and that category, that category was known. Uh, <laughs> that there's a doctrine that emerges at this time from the council and so on, called perpetua servitus Judaeorum. That is, that the Jews were the perpetual or the eternal servants of the Christian world. That since their Messiah had come, those who were not Christian were meant to be servants of the Christians. And that was our lot. Now, the Pope had total theological control over Europe's Christians, but he didn't have, and this was part of what Innocent was trying to say, the Popes don't have theological control over Jews. They have theological control over kings, but not over Jews. Because they can't, the Jews should be allowed to read their traditional texts and have their traditional beliefs. They're fundamentally wrong, but they need to exist in the world with those beliefs because that's part of the whole cosmic plan. However, the Jews will be totally subject, totally subject to the king. And when I say totally subject, they are in fact direct servants and possessions of the kings. Now, we have a familiar picture of this whole period that Jews were restricted in their professions to usury and interest and so on. That picture is much more complex than you might think. In some places that happened, but in other places Jews were banned from those sorts of activities. So it's a bit different, but in all cases throughout Christian Europe we were regarded as subjects of the king. Now, this is the real point. <coughs> As part of this, Innocent began, and that's why I say he's not so innocent, he began in reaction to some of the high scholastic heresies that were emerging, he began a thing that has become known as the Inquisition. This is not the Spanish Inquisition. That's not for another 250 years. It's in the 1230s that the Inquisition begins as an office. The office of the Inquisition in the papal domains that did not yet advocate torture, but specifically the newly minted order of Dominicans were given task to root out heresy. People could be imprisoned, they could be killed, they just hadn't thought of torturing people yet. Now, it became established under Innocent III's decree that the Inquisition is weeding out heresy among Christians, but we don't really care about Jewish heresies because Jews are not under our theological control. Follow? Jewish book can't be heretical. It can be nonsense, it could be blasphemous, but it can't be heretical. Heresy is something that belongs in the Christian world. Jews are just subjects of their king and they have to put up with all the crap that that entails. Now, that's a very, very important moment. 
the establishment of the Inquisition and <laughs> the, uh, the outcomes because it is in fact the next Pope or maybe the next but one because I think there were a couple of quick Popes but the next main Pope that comes along after 1240 around that, that time is Gregory the Ninth. Gregory Nine has a different picture of this and wants to extend the whole discussion about texts and their suitability for human beings to Jews. He begins confiscating Jewish texts. Now, let's just back up a bit. Let's back up a bit. It's a very complex picture I'm giving you, but I, so I want to make sure we get in the right order. We don't get confused. In the 1220s, Sorry, just one more quick thing I wanted to talk about in relation, because it, it ties in, in relation to mysticism. Yeah, I talked about Eliezer of Worms. We talked about the whole Regensburg School here. Of course, once again, the big activity is happening in Provence. Kimchi came from Provence. He wasn't particularly necessarily known as a mystic, but that's where that was happening. But now that the Christian kings are starting to capture areas here and make life more okay for Jews, although Provence is in France and its basic access was this way, it starts going that way. And so we start seeing a cross influence between Provence and towns in northeastern Spain, particularly the city of Girona. So, for example, the son of the Ravad... Remember who was the Ravad? We Avraham ben David of Poskier, who was in Provence, and the great crit crit uh, critic of the Rambam, respectful critic of the Rambam. His son is known as Isaac the Blind. In Hebrew, we call him Yitzhak Saginaor, which means Isaac of a lot of light. It's a euphemism for the fact that he was blind. He became the father, the uber daddy of Kabbalah. His main student, who'd studied with him in Provence, moved then to Girona, and that was Azriel of Girona. By the time you get to Azriel of Girona, the whole Sephirotic system that I spoke about, the understanding that there are specific creative modalities of God, the whole science of the Sephirot that we're not going to go into now, is already very, very sophisticatedly developed in the interaction between Girona and Provence. This is more about laying the foundation of what we're going to talk about next week, but it's important to understand that. There is a big intellectual and cultural cross-fertilization happening here. One individual who is a very great rabbi in Provence called Shlomo of Montpellier enacted a ban against Maimonides, a very, very severe ban. And 
it would appear that he either participated in or at the very least acquiesced to an event that horrified a lot of people and that was that they took all of the works of the Rambam and they burnt them. A public burning in the Jewish community. This is not a wider thing. This happened in the Jewish community. A public burning of Maimonides' books sanctioned by Shlomo of Montpellier, one of the biggest rabbis of Provence. This is a very, very shocking event. Who was it that said that uh, in the place where they burn books, eventually they'll burn people, right? This was to have tragic outcomes. That would have been, that would have been in the 1220s at some point. Now, also in the 1220s, a young man in Provence, Uh, uh, goes a bit what you might call off the derech. <laughs> he goes a bit, um, he goes a bit theologically AWOL. He mucks around with the Karaites, such as they are, but then eventually he converts to Christianity. And as a result of that, and uh, who, who am I talking about? There's some very famous converts to Christianity in the Middle Ages, but this one is one of two or three that's dead head and buff shoulders for the trouble they caused. This is Nicholas Donin. Donin converted to Christianity and was excommunicated in Paris by the great Bar, the Tosophist, the greatest, one of the greatest Tosophistic rabbis living in France, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris. Now, Donnan puts up with that for a few years, but eventually makes his way to see Gregory Nine in Rome and says to him, if you're interested in confiscating Jewish books, then what you really need to understand is what the Talmud is. The Talmud is the real religious book of the Jews. They do believe in the Old Testament, but they only believe in the Old Testament as understood by the Talmud. And the Talmud is a blasphemous document. And Gregory Nine goes, really? And he goes, yes. And I've translated big chunks of it, and I'll show you what it says. So Gregory Nine said, well, this is outrageous. We can't have all the Jews throughout Europe studying these blasphemous texts against Christianity. I mean, how can, we, how, can, how can anyone go to sleep at night with that going on? So he summons and he coordinates and he summons and he orders the first big disputation. Now, you need to be aware that disputations, medieval Christian Jewish disputations, is a whole genre in itself. The people who like literally make careers studying that. But the ones you really need to know about are the three major ones and the first of those three major ones is the disputation of Paris 1240 between Rabbi Yechiel of Paris and three other rabbis but he was the main one the very rabbi that had excommunicated Donnan summoned by the Pope to have a debate in Paris against Nicholas Donnan 
on charges of blasphemy of the Talmud. Some very, very clever arguments, I've got to tell you, were used by the rabbis in that debate. But their hands were very tied. This was not so much a debate on the truth values of Christianity versus Judaism. That was going to happen 25 years or so later in the big one we're going to look at next week in Barcelona. But this was really about, is the Talmud blasphemous? And they used some very, very careful and considered answers to try and avoid those charges. But ultimately, the decision was made that the Talmud is a blasphemous document, according to Gregory Nine, and all copies of the Talmud in France must be burnt. 24 cartloads something like 12,000 manuscripts were brought into the Place de la Concorde and burnt. All copies, and they stringently, and they used all the powers of the Dominicans and the newly minted Inquisition to carry this out. A lot of people saw that as a consequence of the burning of the rumbum. Because the church even said, if the Jews can burn their own books, so can we. And we got bigger fires. Very, very big moment. Now, it is the greatest student of Rav Shlomo of Mount Pellier. And remember, I'm talking about the names of the heads of the movements, but this was going on everywhere. Shlomo of Mount Pellier put a total ban against learning the Rambam, and he put a total ban on people learning philosophy. And many, many rabbis and communities followed that directive. Jewish philosophy and philosophy generally got a very, very bad rap coming out of the Middle Ages because of the whole dispute over the Rambam. But his greatest student is someone whose name has come down to us. And oh, I mean at the time people were pretty upset when they saw the burning of the Talmud. They were pretty upset at what had happened. His greatest student <coughs> is we know as Rabbeinu, and there's not many people in Jewish history that get the title Rabbeinu. Rabbeinu Yona of Gerona. It's a cool name, Jonah of Gerona. <laughs> what famous, famous text did Rabbeinu Yonah write? This is something you should know. If you only remember one fact from this talk, remember this. What famous text did he write? Some people in Jewish history are just astonishing. When he saw the burning of the Talmud in Paris and realized that all of that was an outcome from the burning of the Rambam, he stood up publicly and said, I was wrong. My teacher was wrong. 
because Yonav Garona was right in there with the, with the, with the whole anti-Rambam thing. I was wrong. We cannot do this. I'm going to spend the rest of my life devoted to repentance for that. And he wrote a famous, famous book that is still studied today. One of the great ethical treatises emerging from the Middle Ages called Sha'arei Teshuvah, The Gates of Repentance. It's all about repentance. Now, Yonav Gorona said, Rabbeinu Yonah said, I'm going to go and prostrate, 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 prostrate on the, I'm going to go to Tiberias. I'm going to go to the land of Israel. I'm going to stretch myself on the grave of the Rambam every day for 10 days or every week for 10 weeks with a minyan and beg the Rambam for forgiveness. Problem was that he set out on this big journey, big project that, and you make a big public announcement and you've written a book about repentance. And you say, I'm going to go and I'm going to prostrate myself at the grave of the Rambam. And he got as far as Toledo. And when he got to Toledo, people said, ah, oh, you're Rabbeinu Yonah. We think you should stay here. We'll give you a shiva. We'll give you a job. You become the chief rabbi, bada boom. And he stayed there for many years until tragically he died uh, of, a, of a bizarre illness or in a plague. And obviously the legend emerged that he died like that because he had never fulfilled his pledge to go and ask forgiveness from the Rambam. So it's one of the big stories of this entire period is the story of Rabbeinu Yonah as a result of the burning of the Talmud and his total, the greatest ethical thing you can sometimes do as a leader is to stand up and say, I was wrong. That then had, in one second, that then had a phenomenally enduring effect. That, that changed things. After that, there was never any question about the works of the Rambam. We study the Mishnah Torah today because people like Yonah of Gorana, Rabbeinu Yonah got up and said, we were wrong. We were all wrong about the Rambam. He was a giant. Now let's just move on. Yeah? The, do you know the impact of all those Talmudim being disappearing out of the Jewish world? Well, you know, Jews tend to read, they tend to write, so a couple of generations, you know, they would have been, to some extent, replaced. It was an edict that, that went through France. Um, <coughs> it was an edict that went through France, not the whole of Europe, So, and also, you know, there's discourse in the Jewish world. It's a good question. Uh, it did, it's no question, that it set back French Jewry for quite some time in terms of its scholastic learning. But by now, the, 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 there'd been a shift towards east and west. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So this, yes. So part of that, part of that, and and, and that, and also later encounters with the Inquisition, uh, and not only that, but also the Counter Reformation as well. Uh, at various times, the Talmud was self-censored by Jews. They took out certain sections. And we know that because we have in our possession manuscripts that show us alternative versions where that stuff is left in. Uh, particularly if you were printing the Talmud in Italy, 
at the beginning of the 16th century, you'd want to be extremely careful. And by that time, the church is fully acquainted with the Talmud and is aware of exactly which passages uh, they need you to leave out, such as, um, well, such as, now, oh, well, you know, th th there's one famous passage where Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, it's a Talmudic passage, and uh, then they discuss what his punishment is and so on, and he ends up getting boiled in excrement, basically. And if you're a Christian, you're really there going, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, funnily enough, funnily enough, in uh, in the disputation of 1240, that was one of the texts that was levelled at the rabbis, and they answered it by saying that there were lots of people called Jesus, and not 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 everyone in France who's called Louis is king. And they went, eh, well, okay. Now. Um, it's a fast, those, are, those of you who want to get into disputations, it's a fascinating, fascinating area. And we do have a lot of them documented in the discussions and the accusations and the responses. Very, very interesting. All right. But like I said, in 1240, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris's hands were tied. Uh, that's not going to be the case in the debate of Barcelona. It's a total free-for-all and a totally different outcome. Now... Um, I want to just talk briefly about, uh, overall, the picture for Jews is horrible in uh, Western, in Europe, in Christendom generally. Uh, there is, um, you know, the, 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 the Abuyids uh, are going over here, the Mamluks are on the rise, but in Christian Europe, uh, what I want us to understand is, although the picture is horrible, I'm, I'm often saying how horrible it is, uh, there were a few Christian kings that tried to move things in another direction and, and it's interesting for us to know about that, particularly here um, with the conquest. Now, you know that as I've gone on and on before, right, for the last few hundred years, there's been this north-south divide, Christianity and Islam. So that's why it was quite a stunning thing when James of Aragon basically conquered Valencia and basically created this whole, the whole of the eastern side of Spain as one great uh, province. James was, as much as a Christian king in the Middle Ages could be, in the high Middle Ages, friendly to the Jews. He was of that model where he actually wanted to reform the law for Jews. He fundamentally saw Jews not as cosmically cursed, but as simply intelligent people that were theologically wrong. But frankly, whatever you think about the Jews, they're very good in business. And they seem to make very good doctors. And they understand economics the way that my non-Jewish counsellors don't seem to understand. And when I give them money, they make money for me. So why would I not want them here if I'm trying to establish this economy? However, we need some legislative safeguards so that they will come here. Otherwise, why would they come here? So the Edict of Valencia by James of Aragon, and James of Aragon will feature again next week. It's, 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 we're not finished with him. He's a fascinating, he's called the Hammer of the Moors because he really, really pushed the whole second Reconquista to its fundamental conclusion. 
And so the whole picture we have of Christian Spain being awful, that's not going to really kick off for another 150 to 200 years. It does get awful. Another example would be uh, Duke Ferdinand II of Austria. Uh, Jews have been living in Austria for quite some time and we have evidence of a synagogue in Vienna already from the early 13th century, from the period that we're talking about. We already know a documented synagogue in Vienna. But Duke Ferdinand II of Austria passed a whole series of laws to protect Jews because he wanted Jews to come and help establish his economy. This is a picture we've seen. When, when William the Conqueror took England in 1066, he brought Jews with him, but he didn't bring Jews with him because he wanted, you know, he had an existing state of affairs and he wanted to improve it. He brought Jews with him because he felt he owned them. But this was more along the lines of an invitation to Jews. We do have legal safeguards for you. You will be free from harassment. People will not be allowed to throw things at you on your festivals. Apparently that was a big thing. People go around on Yom Tov and chuck stuff at Jews. That won't be happening. If anyone perpetrates violence against a Jew, they have to pay twice. They have to pay a governmental fine, which was in gold, and personal compensation to the Jew, which was in silver. Now, that was remarkable for the time. Of course, it didn't help the Jews 200 years later, two centuries later, when they were all expelled from Austria. In other words, just because Jewish people are given a certain temporary reprieve doesn't mean it's lasting. And of course, the big king of this period in the East, in the center in the East, is of course, Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor. He's the dude who recaptured Jerusalem in the Sixth Crusade. He's a very, very big figure. He's called, he's, he was famously called, because just the way he's... A, Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor, who is in the background of this whole talk, is not really seeing individual states as much as a totality. He himself spoke six languages. He was a huge supporter of scholarship. He's been called, he was actually called the first European. He's not the first person to think of a concept of Europe. You know who called him the first European? Nietzsche. Now Frederick II also Interesting, because he's over here and James is over here, but they both have similar ideas about Jews. James of Aragon kept a Hebrew translator on staff. Frederick II also kept Jewish scholars, retained Jewish scholars in his court. They were extremely interested in science and they felt that Jewish scholarship could help with that. I, I can't not say this because this is famous about Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor. There's two Frederick II's. One was the Duke of Austria, but this is a different Frederick II who's the Holy Roman Emperor. But, you know, today, when you want to do uh, science experiments, yeah, so you need to get ethics clearances. That wasn't exactly how it was back then. And if you're the Emperor and you want to do a science experiment, you just decide to do it. And one of the things that was fascinating, Frederick, 
<coughs> was whether or not there was an innate human language. Now we can laugh, but this is the beginnings of science as we know it. It's just, it's, we're, not even, we're not even yet at the conditions that are going to lead to the circumstances that lead to the enlightenment. But we are just, the, the, the rays are just picking up because we're reading Aristotle, we're going, well, we can use our rational minds, we can think our things for ourselves. So he goes, oh, I think there might be an innate human language. It's like Chomsky on crack. Why don't we take a whole, thank you, a whole bunch of babies and not speak to them and stick them in a place and just give them food and what they need to survive. And when they grow up, let's see if they, what they speak. Now, the general consensus about the outcome of this experiment was that they would be speaking Hebrew because that was the natural language of Adam. He wanted to prove that. Now, it's ridiculous from our perspective, but it shows a method. This is the rise of scientific method. And therefore, he needed Jewish scholars on staff for experiments like that uh, because, you know... We do know the results of it. It's an awful barbaric. What happened was, is that they were cared for by, in some cases, their own mothers and nurses who were under a ban of speaking. Can you imagine being told you're not allowed to speak to your child? But what they found was the children, they, they, they were inevitably communicating with the children. The children grew up basically as imbeciles, but were used to communication of clapping and hand language and whatever to talk about what they needed. It was awful. I mean, a, another experiment he did was to, was to feed uh, two meals to the same person. No, no not, the, not the same person. The same meal to two people. Yeah? And uh, probably prisoners. And then send one out hunting and another one would sit inside. And then a few hours later he'd kill them both and disembowel them to see who had digested their food the best. This is science in the 13th century, a la Frederick II. However, the reason I can't get lost in Frederick II, he's fascinating, but the reason I want to erase Frederick II, the biggest reason is, is because Frederick II, because of these kinds of interests, made a full inquiry, a royal commission, if you like, and this is unique, into whether there is any truth to the blood libel. And Frederick concluded and published and decreed a complete refutation of the blood libel. It's not true. It's a slander against the Jews. This was a very, very important moment in the context of European history. It didn't stop the blood libel from happening. In fact, throughout the 1240s, we start to see a new type of accusation. Remember, I'm always saying every time a new anti-Semitic idea comes into the world, it soon becomes very trendy. So it pops up in one place in Germany. Then we start seeing it popping up elsewhere. That happened with the blood libel. Already, the first blood libel was actually a hundred years earlier. But now exactly, almost exactly a hundred years later, we see another slanderous accusation. You see, the Christian church now, the people behind, I shouldn't say the Christian church, the people behind the slander worked on the fact that they said, you know, the Jews are really defying Christ, but they actually do believe. And when we perform the Mass and 
there is a transubstantiation. Yep. <coughs> the bread becomes the body of Christ. They believe that. So what they do is they try to steal it. It's called that bread that has transubstantiated is called the host. Yep. So they steal the host or they break into the church and they pierce it until it bleeds. Beyond weird. It's called the accusation of the desecration of the host. But it cost thousands and thousands of Jewish lives. There were massacres after massacres in all places throughout Europe because of this belief in the desecration of the host. So if it wasn't a blood libel, it was a desecration of the host. Now, uh, so I wanted to talk, but, but I did want to say, like, although we have this horrible picture, there were kings and rulers at various times who were trying to effect some kind of change in the relationship between the Jews and the Christians. But on the whole, we were servants of the king. We existed purely at the protection and the pleasure of the king. And we were subject to that even if we were outside the theological reach of the Inquisition, which on not all occasions we were. I'm just going to mention very quickly just a couple of other things that I want to talk about before I finish. Just uh, five more minutes or so. Um, I just, because I want to <laughs> talk about uh, Stephen Langton. Who's heard of Stephen Langton? I can tell you right now, and I'm going to say these words, and you're going to go, nah. I'll tell you right now, you may not recognize the name, but you are very familiar with his work. Stephen Langton was uh, an ecclesiastical figure in the Church of, not the Church of England, the Church in England. Church of England doesn't exist yet. In the Church in England in the 13, early 13th century. In fact, he was pretty much at the forefront of making sure that the decrees of the Lateran Council of 1215 were enforced in England. He gathered his own synod at Oxford and made sure that everybody was going to understand this is how it's going to be, particularly in relation to the Jews. He was no friend of the Jews. That's what makes it kind of a little bit remarkable what I'm about to tell you and why you know his work. He also wanted to create a structure whereby it would be easier for Christians to argue with Jews about the Bible. The Bible was a bit of an unwieldy document. So Stephen Langton divided it into chapters. Those chapters which were developed by a Christian priest in order to argue against Jews became absorbed into the Jewish Bible itself because we saw them and went, you know what? They're quite handy. I mean, we got the Parsha of the week, but that doesn't really help us that much. Plus, he's done it for the whole Bible. I mean, you've got to realize, before Langton, the book of Isaiah was... Where, were the, where, where, where do I start? Where do I finish? Where are the breaks? He divided the chapters. The chapters that we now use in all of our Tanakhs, even the Frum Art Scroll ones, whatever you want to pick up, all implemented by Stephen Langton. So we're not against a good idea when we see it, but we need to just recognize where it came from.
Another very, very interesting thing about this period, and some of you are going to go, oh, really? So the parashiyot had already existed. There is obviously a discussion, as there is in all Jewish sources. Uh, there are two views. But either the parashiyot were introduced by Ezra back at the beginning of the Second Temple when they instituted the public reading of Torah, or, as is also possibly likely, that they were a bit later, perhaps, uh, in the early period of the Talmudic, um, you know, particularly in the, in, the, in the Amoraic, in Babylonia, and so on, uh, when the whole idea of dividing up the weekly cycle of the whole Torah into a year really became established. Um, you know that there was a com two competing systems. One was a tricycle, one was a unicycle, and so on. Um, but that's much older. But that's what we had. That's all we had was the parashiot. And Langton came along, gave the whole Bible chapters, and we went, great, brilliant. You want to use that? Bring it on. Another interesting facet of this period, and some of you are going to go, oh, really? And I'm going to go, yes, really. Is that this period is really the closest period that scholars identify to the rise of a very unique language called Yiddish. It is from here that we start to see that the Jews of Ashkenaz, particularly the Jews living in German-dominated countries, and Germany is now kind of flexing its influence a bit towards the east. Remember that <laughs> most of Frederick's rule, although he was very focused on what was going on in the Crusades and so on, had to constantly keep one eye out for the Mongols. There was a general thing, so the Germanic peoples are kind of flexing a bit, and the Jews living in those countries have been there long enough that they have started to speak in a unique Judeo-German. I'm sure you're aware, those of you who've studied Yiddish will know that there's Old Yiddish, Middle Yiddish, Late Yiddish, Modern Yiddish, Polish Yiddish, Gaulish Yiddish, all the different things going on with Yiddish, but it has its linguistic origins more or less in this particular period. Yep. And of course, the last thing I just wanted to mention was the rise of the Mamluks. The Mamluks basically came from slaves in Egypt and they rose up to eventually overcome the Abuyid dynasty that had been established quite some decades before by Saladin and they overtook it and therefore eventually the Mamluks, by the time we close this period, are pretty much in control of the land of Israel and certainly will be for the next half a century. That really locks out Christianity. It locks it out until today. That's, what, that's when the Crusades basically, they didn't quite give up, they staggered on for a few more decades, but it's from that point on that we don't really see that much Christian penetration into the land of Israel. It's a lockup for Islam. Yeah? And eventually, you know, because eventually in the 1400s, the Ottomans are going to come along and so on, and it's all game over for Christianity. They get a little shtibble there on uh, on, uh, on, har on, 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 on Harzion. Yeah. Can I just ask a very fundamental question? Why were the Muslims so interested in... I mean, we know why the Christians were, we know why Jews were. But... Why were the Muslims interested in what? <sighs> you, know, you know, even, even, even as early as the 12th and 13th centuries, this period we're talking about, any rabble in Syria could be roused up by an imam on a Friday morning 
talking about how we have to reclaim Jerusalem. They have, they see Al-Aqsa as one of, they, Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran, but they do, it does talk about Al-Aqsa, the far place, and it was seen as the kind of limits of the journeys of Muhammad and was seen as a holy city, not as holy as Mecca and Medina, but nevertheless regarded as a city that they didn't want to give up. And if they give up Jerusalem, something you said the word fundamental, and it's very true. It's a, it's a fundamental thing that we need to keep remembering. And it's possibly as true now of the Islamic world as it was then. But Islam and Christianity are both absolutist religions. There's no room for any other religion. We have the truth. Jews don't have that problem. Jews are used to existing in a world where there's lots of different views and religions, and they all can do what they want. But these guys can't handle that. I think the popular, maybe wrong, the popular understanding is that Muhammad dreamt that he went up to heaven from the rock. He dreamt it. But that's not enough to make him fight Well, can I suggest that you take that up with a Muslim cleric <laughs> uh, and, and di discuss it with them? I, I would love to get into that with you, uh, and I'm certainly interested in what you discover, but I, I, I don't have an answer for you on that, other than the fact that what I do know is that Jerusalem is extremely important to them. Bearing in mind also that until he made the decision to worship towards Mecca, Jerusalem was the original location that Muslims bowed towards. Because, because they, at the very beginning of Islam, their starting point was the Bible. It was the Bible. And really, Muhammad became disillusioned by uh, the unwillingness of Jewish communities to adopt his new framework. Had they been more... We, I think they needed to do what they needed to do, but had they perhaps been more willing to absorb that, um, Islam might have ended up being some weirdo cult within Judaism. Who knows? But that's not what happened. But Jerusalem was important, and according to many, it still is. Sorry? Now they pray with their back to Jerusalem. Well, depending on where they are. I mean, if you're on the other, if you're east of Mecca, you're going to be praying to both. Yeah, it's all very good. But also with yes, yeah, but although Abraham's not associated with Jerusalem, <coughs> Abraham is associated with the land of Israel. <coughs> well, yeah, but then you've got to go to the rabbis to say the rabbis are going to tell you that Moriah is Jerusalem. So, well, that is that, that, that. Once again, we are going into Islamic theology. I wish this was a talk on Islamic theology, but it's not. But we are. But yes, yes. They, they basically replaced Isaac with Ishmael in the whole uh, self-sacrifice story. And um, therefore, if they, and, and every reason to believe, they would have adopted the Chazalic position on that because Muhammad was quite open to adopting, adopting different Midrashic perspectives. So fine, that was on Moriah and that was in Jerusalem and therefore, therefore kind of the founding of their faith happens there. And so it is important, but I can't stress enough that I feel a little underqualified to talk about Islamic theology at this point. The same way that I feel a little unqualified to talk about Mongol religion right now, uh, but because I was, I, that's a fantastic question, and I'm, I feel bad that I didn't um, perhaps look into that and remind myself of what was going on. Uh, all we know about the Mongols is that they were terrifying. 
Yeah. If it started now, when does Ladino start? Ladino, Ladino, Ladino is. Ladino, it's complex. Well, first of all, you already know that in Spain we have a Judeo Arabic. But a Judeo Spanish. Uh, would be would need really to be just about to start now it's a little bit later because you actually need Jews living in Portugal and Spain uh, under Christian rule to really have that develop I think so I think that we are entering the period where Ladino is starting to take off but I think Yiddish is already established before Ladino but I'm saying that with a predominantly Ashkenazic audience. Maybe if I said that somewhere else, I wouldn't go down so well. But I, 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 I think that's the case. All right, guys. I do have. I do have. Uh, I just want to make sure that I, I cover that. What's represented here is I talked about a lot more than what's on the page. Okay, we talked about a lot more, but it will give you an idea of uh, where we went with it. If you want to pick those up. Now, I can't tell you enough. Uh, those those of you who weren't. Uh, who didn't think that uh, what we discussed tonight was um, that interesting, um, I, I think it is, but uh, should know that next week, really, we're going to bring it all together. Yeah? Because the series is called From the Rumbum to the Zohar, so how do we get to the Zohar? How do we get there? And 1290 is such an astonishingly important year in Jewish history, you don't want to miss it. So I'm hoping I'll see most of you next week, and uh, thanks for listening. about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.